everyone. Didn't Joe do a great job reading all those Hebrew names? It was a, uh, a great lesson in how to do an Old Testament reading. Just say them confidently and no one else knows how to say them either. So it's all, all good. Well done, Joe. For keep, uh, one, two kings... I'm just back from holidays, we're in two kings, not one kings, that was last year, two kings open uh, and you will need it open in front of you so if you didn't get a Bible before put up your hand now and we'll get you one because uh, we're going to briefly look at chapter 12 as well that we didn't read before so you'll need to be able to follow along for that also. But now I'm going to pray and then we'll look at it, so let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that all scripture is breathed out by you and so all scripture is useful to us, even uh, a difficult passage like this one with such a strange and frankly horrible story. Uh, so we pray that you will use it tonight to do what you say you do by your word. You will teach us, you'll encourage us, you'll rebuke us, you'll correct us and you will thoroughly equip us for the works of service you have for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. One of the things uh, that struck me over the last couple of months with the death of the Queen, of Queen Elizabeth, uh, a few weeks back is how smooth the transition to King Charles has been. Uh, straight away, Charles just took over and there was no argument, no fuss, no fighting. In May next year, it was announced this week, he'll be coronated, he'll be crowned the King officially. No one's arguing about it. And we just think that's normal because we just think... Well, of course, he's the oldest son and that, isn't that how it works? That's how kings and queens pass it on to the next child and, and he's the next in line, so let's do it. It's actually not normal, uh, at least in terms of history. I've, I read recently or reread uh, a history of the kings and queens of England uh, and let me tell you, throughout history, when kings or queens die, normally there is a fight. Uh, there is politics and people come out and say, no, actually, we don't want the eldest son or the eldest daughter, we want that cousin over there or some obscure relative in Germany or something like that and they fight about it. Uh, and if you read the history books, you'll see that actually what's normal is an argument uh, rather than an easy transition. So if we were 400 years ago, over the last month, I can tell you, one of the other princes, Andrew or Edward or one of them, would be dead. If we were 400 years ago, they would have been assassinated by now. William and the, the little cute ones, they'd be locked up in the Tower of London Megan, Megan would be would be starting a push for Harry. You know, well, she's probably doing that already. But um, that's what happened back in history. That that's how it worked. Often it ends in a bloodbath with with sons being murdered and secret assassinations. But our story today from Two Kings is one of the worst examples of that in all of history. This is one of those horrible stories we've been seeing in Two Kings so far. Hey, have you been enjoying Two Kings? I've been loving Two Kings. I love these books of the Bible. But when I ask if you've been enjoying it, there's a part of you sort of thinks, am I meant to? Because there's been a lot of people getting murdered and killed and you're free to lie. It's God's word. But uh, this time is one of the worst. And it's this queen who tries to overthrow the kings of Judah. Now, of course, it's interesting just as history. It's interesting just, just in and of itself. Uh, but it's actually much more than that because we're going to see here how God works in our world. Uh, and more than that, we're going to see how nothing can stop God's promises from being fulfilled. And so that's the big point tonight, how nothing can stop God's promises from being fulfilled. So let's get into it. Uh, well, for the last few chapters, we've been focusing on Israel. So you've got to remember, if you're joining us midway, just a bit of a recap, you've got to remember how after King Solomon, the, the God's people broke into two kingdoms, Israel, rather confusingly, 
uh, split into two and one of the two was called Israel, which is a bit confusing as I say, but the northern kingdom was Israel, it was most of the tribes, but then there was the little southern kingdom of Judah. But we've been focusing for the last several chapters of the book uh, on Israel in the north, sometimes called Samaria, again confusingly because that's where its capital was. And what we've seen is how the northern kingdom has had bad king after bad king after bad king. I just went back and did a skim read through just to confirm this week. There has not been a good one. Uh, And just to make the point of how murderous it was, I've set it out on your outline and on the screen, it'll come up on the screen, thanks Tom, Uh, the kings of Israel. And the reason I put them on different lines is, that's every time someone got killed and a new family took over. So you see, they didn't have a very good track record. Jeroboam became the king, he managed to hand it on for one generation before his son was murdered, Bash's family took over, that's a great name for someone who does that, but anyway, and then Elah, his son gets king, poor old Zimri who killed Elah doesn't even get to hand it to his son because Zimri gets killed as well. Omri gets the longest run, four generations before Joram is killed. And we met last week, Jehu. And that's who we met. So last week, who was preaching at 630 Church last week? Matt. Matt introduced us to Jehu. Now Jehu, what did you find out about Jehu? Jehu is a butcher. He is a mass murderer. That's what he was. But, and this shows you how bad things were... Jehu is rated the most positively of all of Israel's kings. What does that tell you about the other kings? Tells you a lot, doesn't it? Jehu is famous in history for how many people he killed. That's what he's famous for, but he's the best king they ever had. Well, that's because Jehu was actually anointed by God to bring judgment on the even worse family of Ahab. So that family Ahab, Ahaziah, Joram, because Ahab and his evil queen, if you remember Jezebel, they were the lowest of the low. They were true evil. And so Jehu killed them off. Last week's passage was pretty full on. I think, you know, Matt's so nice, he went a bit, bit light on it, you know. But, but Jehu killed it. It was horrible. If you read closely, you see, gosh, what happened to Jezebel is awful. If, if you're into that, so then go and read it again, the chapters before. Uh, why did that happen? It was justice. As horrible as it is, it was justice because they had led God's people away from God. See, so that's Israel in the north. Now in chapter 11, we swing back to Judah. We swing back to the southern kingdom. I've got to remember, this is the important story. That, that, that's important, but it's not the main game. The important story is what's happening in Judah. Even though Judah was much smaller, it was the real kingdom of God. Now, do you remember why that is? Why is that? Why is Judah the main story? Why is Judah the important story? It's because all of God's promises focused on Judah. So if you're doing uh, intro to the Bible at the moment, you're going to be reading about these Bible passages the next couple of weeks. From the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God said, it is from Judah that my Saviour will come. It's from Judah that the great King will come. And especially it was from the line of David, who was from the tribe of Judah. So David was the great king and the promise was one of your descendants will come and be the saviour of my people and actually save the world and establish God's kingdom forever. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16 with me on the screen. It says, your house, it's David's house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. That was the promise of God. So you see, for Israel in the end, you know, what did it matter if Ahab's son didn't become the king? I mean, it mattered to them, but it mattered just like 
when an Australian Prime Minister changes or, or an English Prime Minister changes? What did it matter if General Jehu staged a coup and, and killed the king? It mattered to them, but in the scheme of things, not so much. But for Judah, this matters. Because this is about how God is going to save the world. And amazingly, and especially when you compare it to Israel, amazingly, David's line had carried on in Judah. So look, I've put it on here. Now, unfortunately, the screen's not wide enough uh, to capture this with our next slide, Tom, with the kings of Judah. But that's all one line, okay? So see how the difference between Israel, we're on all the different lines, and if this was on one line, it'd make it more clear. But basically, it's gone from David to his son Solomon, to Rehoboam, to Abijah, to Asa, to Jehoshaphat, to Joram, to King Ahaziah. Now, most of them were hopeless. That's reality. Even the best of them were okay. But God's promises still stood. We're still waiting for the great king to come to the line, from the line of David. Which brings us to today's story. That's what makes today's story so massive. Uh, because this was the moment where it actually looks like all of God's promises were going to fail. It looks like it's all going to come to nothing. So I've actually called this crisis point. Will God's promises fail? So come with me, come to chapter 11, but actually flick back to chapter 10 from last week. So what's happened to create this crisis? Well, Jehu, the butcher, up in Israel, creates a bit of a tidal wave that flows down into Judah. Because when he kills King Joram of Israel, poor old King Ahaziah of Judah, who's pretty hopeless, gets caught up in it all. He gets killed as well, but even worse... 42 other members of the royal family were killed with him. That's, that gives you a bit of an insight into Jehu. He thinks, I'll kill him, but I'll tell you what, why not 42 members of his family as well? And suddenly, there is a power vacuum in Judah. So, and a real crisis. For the first time, it's actually a real question. Could the line of David be wiped out? Just like the line of Ahab has been wiped out in the north. Could God's promises actually fail? And it just gets worse as we come to our chapter. So come to chapter 11, verse 1. I've called it the evil queen takes her chance. So look at me at verse 1. I was struck, as as Joe read this before, it was the same with the Bible readers this morning. And it was almost like as they read the first verse, they were apologetic about how awful it was to start a Bible page like this. Listen to what it says. It says, When Athaliah, Ahaziah's mother, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to annihilate all the royal heirs. It's just a horrible thing, isn't it? What a start. And what a nice lady. Uh, Her son... The king gets killed, so she says, I'll tell you what I'll do, I will kill all my grandchildren and all his brothers and all his cousins and anyone else in the family line. As I say, this this sounds evil to us, and it is, it sounds unthinkable. Sadly, it's not that abnormal in world history. Sadly, there are countries today where this happens, where coups happen and people just wipe out whole families. That is what people do in our world for power. But this was about more than power. This was about more than politics. You see, Athaliah is actually a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. You see, she is the daughter of the evil king and queen of Israel. Remember I talked about King Jehoshaphat a few weeks ago and I said he is the, the good but dumb king? Well, the dumbest thing he did was marry off his sons to the daughter's of the king Ahab in Israel. And so the thing is, this woman is a Baal worshipper. She hates the one true God and she hates his kings. She isn't after power, she's trying to put an end to the God of Israel. That's what's going on here. Now, this is not a very well-known story, is it? 
I actually asked this morning, I said, who remembered this story before you read it this week here at church or before church? And no one put up their hands. So I'm not going to ask you because it was too demoralizing. But it's making a point. Not many of us here remember this. And if we've read it, we only half remember it. It was interesting. Kev got up this morning and talked about what's happening in kids' church. Now we're looking at 1 and 2 Kings. And he said, this is the passage we're looking at. This passage did not feature in what we're doing at kids' church. I don't know why. They don't write, write books about this chapter. It is actually one of the most important moments in the Old Testament. It's one of the greatest moments of crisis in the Old Testament. You know how there's those kids' books and kids' movies, The Grinch That Stole Christmas? And the idea is that the bad monster or the bad person, they're all similar themes, the stories, that they, they are sucking all the joy out of the world and unless the kids get together to stop them, there, there won't be any joy and Santa won't come and bring his gifts and Christmas won't happen. Uh, this lady really was putting an end to Christmas. And I'm not meaning metaphorically, because you see, if she succeeds, Jesus would never come. This is really important. If she succeeds, there would be no Emmanuel. God with us. There, there would be no Christ. There, there would be no Son of God coming into the world to save sinners. There would be no more salvation for anyone. This is a massive moment. So what happens? On well, the next heading, God works through his quiet, faithful servants. And this is the rest of the chapter, verses 2 to 20. See, sometimes God intercedes in history with massive miracles, doesn't he? You know, think, if you think back over your whole Bible, there are moments like the Exodus, where God intercedes in history, does these incredible plagues and, and miracles, and then parts the Red Sea, all to save a people for his very own. Sometimes that is how God works in the world, but not generally. More commonly, God works through quiet, unknown, faithful people of courage. So we meet Jehoshima, and she is one of those true heroes of the faith that no one has heard of. Again, I'll ask you, who, before we read this passage, thought, I know who she is? It's one over there. There you go. Well done. But this is the thing, isn't it? We don't know her. She's not one of the heroes of the faith. Well, I want to tell you she is. Who is she? She's the dead king's sister. She would have been from a different mother to the murdering queen. Remember, they had lots of wives. Uh, she would have been from a different mother. We learn in two chronicles also, she is the wife of the priest, Jehoiada, who's the other hero of this story. But this lady is a hero. She goes and grabs this little baby son of the king, Joash, and she smuggles him into the temple where she keeps him hidden for six years. It's actually like one of those stories from the Second World War. Have you read the diary of Anne Frank? You know, how, how people who were opposed to Hitler kept Jewish people in their attics or, or behind walls. Or that movie, is it? Jojo Rabbit has it in it as well, where, where people keeping people away, Jews away from the murderous Hitler uh, did that. Well, that's what's happening here. For six years, she kept this little boy in the temple every day worried that they'd come and kill him and her. And so for six years, the evil queen rules Judah and she even sets up a temple of Baal in Jerusalem. This is actually a horribly low moment in the Old Testament, that to actually have a temple of Baal, Israel had temples of Baal, but to have it in Jerusalem, at the centre of their faith, is horrible. But after seven years, so Joash is seven years old, Jehoiada the priest, he's the other hero of the story, they stage a revolution, he builds an army in the temple. I think this is great. 
He, he, the Karaites, who it talks about there, they, they were like foreign mercenaries. He gets them, he gets the army, the, the commanders of the guard, he gets the guards from the, from the palace, he gets them all together and he uses, he arms them by using the, the shields and the spears from all the way back at the time of David, which had just sort of been thrown into a storeroom when the temple was built. But he uses them to arm them and when everything is ready, they stage their coronation. Look at verse 12. It says, he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony and made him king. They anointed him and clapped their hands and cried, long live the king. Of course, the queen, the evil queen, she hears the commotion. She comes out, she yells out treason, which is sort of one of the most ironic cries of all history, isn't it? I've killed everyone, but you're committing treason when you kept one of them alive and put him on the throne. But anyway, she gets what she deserves they take her out of the temple because you didn't, don't want to sac, it's sacrilegious to kill someone in the temple. They, they don't do that. They take her out of the temple and they put her to death. It's actually a wonderful story at that point. I, I get shocked when sometimes people go, oh, I wish they wouldn't put them to... This lady was evil. She deserves this. But it's not just that the bad guy or girl in this case gets what they deserve that makes this a great story. It's what they do next. See, Joash, for a time, becomes a great king, not perfect, but but good. Look from verse 17. It says, Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people that they would be the Lord's people, and another covenant between the king and the people. It's Jehoiada's work, because remember, Joash is still only seven years old. But this is one of those beautiful moments that's actually really rare in the Old Testament, where God's people turn back to God. It's actually one of the few wonderful moments of the Old Testament where they turn back to God, they say, enough's enough. We're going to be what we're meant to be. We're going to be God's people. We're going to listen to your word. We're going to do it how we're meant to do it. And so they take practical steps in response. Look at verse 18. It says, so all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They broke its altars and images into pieces and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, at the altars. As I said before, we, we sometimes struggle with the harshness of the response to the priests of Baal in these stories, but that's only because we don't fully comprehend how evil idolatry is. Uh, we don't fully comprehend how evil any of our sin is, but we don't fully comprehend how evil it is to say to the God who made us, we're going to build an image and worship it instead. I- idolatry is evil. And so I want to tell you, this is actually a wonderful model of a right response to God's salvation. In fact, that's our first, what do we take from this story point? I've got three, but what do we take from this story? The first thing, this is a model of true repentance. See, when we receive God's grace and mercy through Jesus, the right response is radical repentance. When the Apostle Paul was describing the the Thessalonians when they first became Christians in 1 Thessalonians 1, he talks about people talk about how you turned from idols to serve the true and living God. See, what, what you do when you become a Christian is you get rid of your old way of life, what you used to worship, what you used to live for. You smash the idols. We, we put to death the, the ways we used to live. Look at how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 3. It'll come up on the screen. It says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. See, this is not just a great story of God keeping his promises, though it is, and we'll get to that in a second. It's a great model for us of how we are meant to respond to God's mercy, 
how we are meant to respond to God's grace. So that's one lesson we take away from this story. It's a model of true repentance to us. What else do we take away? Two other main things I want to draw out. And the first is the main point. And that is God's promises never fail. I've stressed what a crisis point this was. Uh, If this queen had got to Joash, so if that day she'd got to Joash first instead of, uh, uh, of Jehosheba, then all of God's promises would have come to naught. There would be no saviour for the world. We would live with no hope. Humanly speaking, this looked hopeless, but God's promises never fail. God had said, my saviour will come from the line of David. And so actually there was nothing this silly queen could do to stop God's promises coming true. And that is what we always need to remember. Nothing can shake God's promises to you. Nothing can shake God's promises to you. God has made you wonderful promises if you are someone who trusts in Jesus. If you are someone who trusts in and follows Jesus, you have been justified. You are right with God. You are innocent. You've been declared innocent of your sin. You are forgiven. You have been adopted as one of his children. Jesus has paid the price for your sin. God has promised that Jesus will return to bring a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth and he has said you will be a part of that and God has promised that he is at work in our world establishing his church, saving people to be his very own and he has said not even hell can overcome it. Those are your promises, those are the promises of God and sometimes we can look at our world and we think well it doesn't look like those are coming true. We look at our world and think, are we in a time of Athaliah, if you like? It looks like the world is winning. It looks like people are rejecting Jesus. It looks like it'd be much easier to just give up and stop following Jesus, to just go quiet. It's harder and harder to stand up for the gospel. And so we can be tempted to give in. We can be tempted to compromise. We can be tempted to tone down our faith. And I want to say to you, don't. Because God's promises never fail. Don't give in. Keep trusting the promises of God. That's the big point of this passage. But it leads to my last takeaway for us, and that is God works to fulfill those promises mainly through the quiet faithfulness of ordinary believers like us. I said before how sometimes God interjects into the world in massive, miraculous ways. to to bring about his promises, like with the Exodus, or for that matter, the resurrection of Jesus. But generally, God has chosen to work through the quiet faithfulness of his people. See, sadly, by next week, you'll have probably forgotten Jehosheba's name again. I know now you go, now I'll remember it, just to prove Phil wrong. But, But by Tuesday, you'll have forgotten it. It's just the way it works. Prove me wrong next week. But she is a hero When everyone else was giving into evil, what did she do? She just quietly did the right thing, whatever the cost. And do you notice how she didn't need a special word from the Lord? Notice how in this passage there's no special words from the Lord, I choose you and now you go and save Joash. There's none of that. Why did she do it? Because she loved God and she wanted to do the right thing and she knew killing babies was wrong. That's one reason. And she loved God and she knew that his promises were about the line of David and so she knew she had to protect the line of David. She didn't need a special word to know what was right. 
I talk to too many Christians today who think they need special words from the Lord to know what, what they need to do. We know what we've got to do. Living the Christian life is actually really, it's really hard, but it's really simple to know what to do in 99% of circumstances. And that is how God made sure that his promises were fulfilled by this person just doing what was right, whatever the cost. God is working his purposes out in our world as we speak. His gospel is going out and people are being saved. And you or I might think God should do that by some large-scale, miraculous conversion event. Uh, and he might do that. Every so often in history, there are great revivals where thousands of people become Christians at once. But on the whole, God works through quiet, faithful Christians getting on with life and making those decisions to be faithful every time they come across them. See, God works through the Christian who just faithfully refuses to compromise in their workplace, whatever the cost. And God works through that because it triggers people to say, why would you do that? What's the reason for your hope? God works through the faithful Christian who offers to read the Bible with their friend and answers their questions. God works through the faithful Christian who gives up time each week to, to go into the schools and, and, and teach SRE, even though sometimes they wonder if any of the kids are listening. That is how God works in our world. And the thing is, no one remembers those people's names. But they are the heroes of the faith and they are the ones who will have crowns in glory, just like Jehoshiba. God's promises never fail. So keep trusting him and just get on with that quiet, faithful obedience that is the heart of the Christian faith. But now, come back with me for one last part of the story. Turn to chapter 12. We didn't read it before. Uh, I'd love you to read it later yourself, because there are such great hopes for Joash. It, it really, there is this, he is, along with Solomon, the, the king who there is the most excitement about as he starts, and he reigns for 40 years, he does what is right in the Lord's sight, it says, but just this, this, this little throwaway line, he does what is right while he has Jehoiada the priest instructing him. See, it's actually Jehoiada who's the guy doing what's right. When he goes, King Joash goes off the rails, just like all the others. You see, Joash is like the nearly did it king. Joash nearly gets around to challenging all the wrong religious practices that had happened in Israel, but not quite. Joash starts a great project to raise money to repair the temple, but all he does is raise the money. He never gets around to repairing the temple. And then he has an awful moment. The Arameans come and threaten to attack Jerusalem and instead of trusting in the God who worked miracles through these faithful people to put him on the throne, instead of trusting that God would protect his people and protect his temple, Joash buys them off and he does something really awful. He takes all the gold that has been given to God, all the gold that's been given to his temple and he gives it away to buy off their attack. Two Chronicles tells us in the end, Joash turns away from God to worship idols. Joash breaks that covenant that was made when he became the king. And finally, he ends with a whimper, he gets assassinated by some of his servants. For all the good beginnings, in the end, Joash goes out with a whimper. He is the great disappointment of the Old Testament. And I just share that to finish, to make the point, Joash is the famous one. Famous one. Joash gets written up in the book. Joash got to sit on the throne. Joash got recorded in the history books. Joash will be in hell. Joash will not be in heaven. 
he will have no crowns in glory. The hero of the story is not the king. It's those forgotten faithful servants, Jehosheba and Jehoiada. They are the heroes because they are the ones whose faithfulness ensured that our true king could come. They are the ones whose faithfulness ensured that our Lord Jesus could come and be the saviour of the world. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises, that whatever happens in this world does not take you by surprise, but you are at work to bring about your wonderful promises. And we thank you for your promises to us that we are declared right with you through Jesus, that we have a place in your eternal kingdom, that Christ will return in glory. And on that day, we will be vindicated with him. And so, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, but we pray that we would walk in the footsteps of these great heroes, that we would quietly get on with serving you with faithfulness. And as we face decisions in our life, we would take the path of following Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.